This is John Shannon with Radio Free Galisteo, and today I am speaking with Helen Osborne, who is the co-founder of Southwest Seminars. The other co-founder is Connie Eichstad, who is the director of Southwest Seminars. And Southwest Seminars is a uh, self-sustaining educational nonprofit organization that specializes in developing programs in Southwest studies in the fields of history, archaeology, natural sciences, and culture which are sensitive to the multicultural heritage and community traditions of its people. Is that a good description of what you guys do? It is. And we're fortunate to have been doing it for 26 years with 100 weeks in a rabbit hole because of COVID. Wow. Right. Well, thank you for those 26 years. And today we'll be talking about what you've got coming up for the rest of this month of March. Alan, what compelled you and Connie to start the seminars and Southwest seminars, what what was the driving force behind it? John, Connie and I both have a background in nonprofit education. Connie as an artist and and she came into nonprofit education as an as an artist and working with artists and creative people. I came into it as a public historian and an adult educator, worked at the College of Santa Fe as an adult educator, and together a spark was created by the city of Santa Fe in a 400th anniversary celebration of our founding as a kingdom in a province of New Spain in an empire. And that was in 1598. And in 1598, in 1998, 400 years had elapsed. And people around the state thought, oh gosh, we better do something important because four centuries is Cuarto Centenario. And so mm-hmm. we actually proposed to the city of Santa Fe, even though it was a statewide commemoration. They actually changed the term in order to be more multicultural sensitive from celebration to commemoration in honor of indigenous people that were here for millennia prior to this, which nobody right. really was paying a lot of attention to. But but we decided we better pay attention to it because if 400 years is going to be important, then we better make the first 15,000 or 20,000 years important. And, and Buffalo soldiers that were black guys fighting Indians, you know, f- freedmen in the Civil War. So we proposed that to the city. The city decided to fund it through the lodger's tax. And in 1997, we began in the summer, 1998, the literal uh, 400th anniversary of the founding of San Gabriel at San Juan Pueblo by Juan de Oñate. And we did three programs a week, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for an entire year. The city paid for free programs of a most incredible diversity. Uh, musicians, poets, scholars, artists, you name it, we had them. We went to public schools. We did free programs to the public, held them in different hotels, and that was good for a year. And we had a very small budget, and we did an incredible amount, nearly 200, actually probably 200 programs, because uh, we went to every single public school, three a week to the public, different hotels. And at the end of a year, the funding was over, and we thought, well, what are we going to do now? And the decision was, well, why not just keep on doing this? Can we do it three nights a week? No. Can we do it one night a week? Yes. Where are we going to go? Hotel Santa Fe stepped forward, which was um, a minority owned by Picaris Pueblo. Now it's all owned, fully owned by Picaris. And they said, if you want to do it here and stay here, do it here. And that's where we've been, with, with some exceptions. We occasionally go to La Fonda. We go to Women's Club Auditorium. But for all these years, since the first year, we've been given a home at Hotel Santa Fe. And we do it Monday night 
because in those days it was only football on Monday night, and who watches football on Monday night? Oh, well, there are some, but, but it was a night when nothing else was going on except football. So we thought, well, let's do it Monday night, and we did. And so that's how we got what some people call Monday night church. Some people say, we don't know who's speaking. We don't know what the topic is. I heard Connie tell this to a lady that called this morning, and she said some of our folks call it Monday night church. They don't know who's speaking or what it is. They don't care. They just come, mm-hmm. and they find out, like, you know, magical mystery tour what's happening and you've had uh an absolutely impressive list of guests for your monday night church and uh, we'll we'll talk about some of those folks in a bit the next four mondays in march you have as as it has been for 26 years except for that uh blip during covid you have more guests coming in do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going to happen this month Oh, I'd love to. And I really appreciate you and Denise and Radio Free Galisteo having us on. You know, it's a privilege. And what you're doing is really important. Thank you. Well, it, thank you for giving me that the, the opportunity uh, to say thank you, because it means a lot. We, we don't advertise. It's word of mouth primarily. We've grown from very small to, you know, burgeoning, uh, especially prior to COVID. But But we have a very faithful following. When people find out about it, they tend to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's 50 weeks a year, year after year. So the first Monday in March is coming up right around the corner, and we have really an exceptional and unique opportunity. We were recommended to work with a Navajo prep school, which is called Navajo Prep. It's mm-hmm. located in Farmington. I was not previously familiar with it, but it's been around uh, 30 years. It used to be called Navajo Academy. It's for young people, and it's uh, – it grants a certificate, which is actually the same as the one that United World College grants, which is worldwide recognized. It's not a high school diploma. It's not a college associate degree. It's called the International Baccalaureate. All right. And, and, and you may have heard of it. It's it's it, it's essentially the 12th and 13th year of education. Mm-hmm. You know, 12th year being senior high school, 13th year being oftentimes first year of university. So the head of school we contacted. She said, well, I'd be delighted to come. And I said, and if you could bring either staff or students, so much the better. And we'll learn about it in any way that you wish to share. And she said, I'd be delighted. So her name is Shauna Allison Vicente. Uh, she's the head of school. She was recommended to continue as a woman leader, which was really important because Diné Navajo culture is a matriarchal, matrilineal uh, matrilocal culture. Um, and the former president of the Navajo Nation's name is Peterson Zaw. And it just so happened that back in 1980, as a College of Santa Fe administrator, we had given Peterson Zaw as president of the Navajo Nation an honorary doctorate. And I was a young guy. Uh, this is a long time ago, over 40 years ago. And I happened to be in, in charge of getting him to, to the college campus, getting him ready for cap and gown and talking to him on the way with his wife in the car with my grandpa from Oklahoma. And I was really impressed with Peterson Saw. He's a lawyer. He really did good uh, for the for his people. Uh, this was before they they became known commonly as the Diné. And uh, doc, uh, Dr. Saw has a little video, if you look up Navajo Prep online, and he says, Shauna, you're a woman, you're a leader, and I want you to lead this school. And he gives his blessing to, to this, which is, I think, really important for us to to understand and appreciate. She's bringing four students, Yilnazba, Rosie, Wanika, 
Devin Lansing, Nicole Smith, and Landon Suko, all Dene, Dene, what the Navajo Nation calls its individual members, Dene. Mm -hmm. I'm told that's five finger people, us. And they're bringing a staff member that graduated from this school who now is in charge of an institute for language preservation. And the Navajo and the Apaches, their cousins, speak an Athabascan language. It's a, it's a Canadian language that, that migrates down south. It's still up way north. And there's many speakers of different uh, tribal groups. And these students are people, uh, I say people, uh, five-finger people, young people, who have an individual interest. And I wanted to share because they're going to talk about their specific areas of interest as students. Language instruction, uh, Kevin Bellin, or Belen, I'm not sure how they say his last name, Kevin Belen, uh, is, a, is a graduate of that school, and he's now the head of the Dene Bazad Institute, which is language preservation. Mm. They're also, one of them is involved or interested in a future in criminal psychology, which is quite interesting. A third one is involved in the interest in textile weaving, which Navajos have become world famous for, right. but which they learned from the Pueblo people when they arrived in the Southwest, because the Pueblos were weaving cotton into tapestries, extraordinary tapestries. Another in the arts, and another in poetry. So, so how better to express what what the future holds, which is what their their title is: leaders now and into the future. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really wonderful to get the students, as well as a graduate of the school who's now involved in language preservation, to talk about what being in that school means to them. So, they by the way, they just went to the roundhouse. Some of them, maybe not these particular ones, but maybe others from the school went to the roundhouse, sang in the rotunda for the uh, legislators. And I bet that was moving and profound. Without so that's coming Monday on March 6th that we start always at six o'clock. It's going to be at Hotel Santa Fe, which is tribal owned by Picaris Pueblo. It's perfectly fitting because a number of Navajo people have married into Picaris over the, over the centuries and a lot of connections between Navajo and Northern Pueblo people. You know, as, as you talked about what the students' interests were, it occurs to me that a lot of it's tied into uh, tradition, but the student also involved in uh, criminal psychology is dealing with a you know a current problem that Native Americans are facing with the, the missing Indigenous uh, women uh, happening all across the country. Uh, Absolutely, we we do study tours in addition to public lectures. We've been doing those all these years as well, and we take it's called travels with a scholar. And we'll talk about that some other time. But 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 we've done quite a bit of uh, traveling in Indian, what we call Indian country, the surrounding five states of New Mexico. And a great deal of those uh, trips have been in uh, Navajo and Western Pueblo country. And the Navajo Nation very graciously shared Navajo uh, policemen and police women, as well as rangers, Navajo rangers who are involved in livestock uh, theft and other interesting topics of crime. Uh, domestic abuse and such. And uh, criminal psychology will be really important for the coming generation to deal with because dealing with it, and, and we're learning this in the dominant society, dealing with it as not as, I don't know what the word is, punishers, mm. but sending first responders that are trained in different aspects of mental health, domestic issues, can help resolve a problem before it comes crisis, along with law enforcement. And that's, I think, becoming common in dominant society. When the tribal nations are allowed to handle their problems, I think they come up with some really creative solutions. Two kids years ago got exiled in Alaska 
for doing whatever they did wrong, and their punishment was to be exiled on an island and survive. Hmm. Well, how are they going to survive? Well, the answer is they better have paid attention to their grandparents. Yeah. So tribal justice can look different than Anglo justice, which is oftentimes just incarceration, but right. not rehabilitation and not recognizing mental health issues. Mm -hmm. Clearly, these young people are thinking about their future and uh, what's important. Well, as the uh, subject said, leaders now and into the future. That's their school motto, by the way. I they had they had a long title for the coming week, which was resilience, survive, survivability, and and sustainability, and this, that, and the other. And then I saw there in in Navajo, and I can't pronounce it, but you can see it on our yeah. schedule. She'll pronounce it. But leaders now into the future is their motto. And I asked Shauna, the head of school, if I could just use that because that to me that succinctly, profoundly, and in a moving way said really what it's all about. And she said, sure. <laughs> well, it seems to fit just right. The following Monday, who do we have? We got this uh, renowned, humble, Albuquerque-born, uh, New Mexico-bred. His father was a renowned conductor of the Albuquerque Children's Symphony. And we knew his mom and dad. They both passed, but they're wonderful. And his stepdad, awesome. Uh, and they sent him off to music school at Hummingbird in Hemis when he was little. And he said, Alan, I used to spend more time outside uh, instead of practicing like I was supposed to my instruments. Uh, I was looking at rocks, lizards, uh, and landforms. <laughs> and he became a geologist. So Dr. Kurt Kempter has an extremely popular uh, following, we refer to them as uh, FOK, Friends of Kurt, or Groupies. And he's a, he's a worldwide traveler. He does uh, literally around the world expeditions with National Geographic and Smithsonian in a private jet that goes around the world and touches down in 25 day trips, that kind of thing. We're going to take a day trip, uh, John, into a what's called, a, and I don't know a lot about it, but I, I looked it up so I could say something. Mar Volcano in Diablo Canyon. We're going to walk up above, uh, this is like north, like we're in Buckman, in the Buckman area. We're going to go above it, on top of it, and we're going to learn about Diablo Canyon, the Mar Volcano that's the primary feature in uh, in Diablo Canyon. A lot of people hike Diablo Canyon down in the river valley, uh, but we're going to actually be up above it and and find out what that the volcano was there before the canyon. Son of a gun. Now, you can't ask me why, because the answer is I don't know. Well, I have a feeling you're going to find out. <laughs> um, let, me, let me give you this sentence, because this will get people that are listening uh, stimulus. Okay. We, we have room for about two or three or four more people at the most. Uh, Kurt Kempter is a really fantastic scholar. He's a great educator. A mar, M-A-A-R, a mar is a shallow volcanic crater with steep sides. We're going to go up about 450 feet, I think that is surrounded by tephra, a tough tephra tufa deposits. And the tephra are thickest near the crater and decrease with distance from the crater. And it's formed when an underground explosion occurs when hot magma comes into contact with shallow groundwater, producing a violent steam explosion. Hmm. Now, how many of us knew that this is right on the outskirts of Santa Fe? I, I found out just now. <laughs> as did i by by thinking oh my god he's going to ask me about a mar volcano very Kevin cool Kemper does a lot of teaching for the community college he's been doing field trips and lectures for us 
He's a really fine young guy, and we think the world of him. He got his PhD at um, at the University of Texas, but he's a New Mexico native. Um, he's a really fantastic chef. We've done field trips where he actually cooks fajitas for us. So anyway, this is not a cooking culinary uh, field trip. It's a day hike, but it'll it'll be fun to be with Kurt. Okay, you said you had room for still had room for people to join this. Yeah, how, we do. I think we got room for that? for four or five, maybe three or four. All right, how do they do that? They can contact uh, us by telephone, 505-466-2775, or they can contact us by email, Southwest, spelled out seminar, Southwest Seminar Run Together at AOL, or they can go on our website, Southwest Seminars, plural, rundogether.org, and and, and ask to sign up. All right. I'll have uh, links to all of those uh, as part of the podcast. And uh, we'll put your phone number in there as well. Perfect. I see that he is also a, an astronaut candidate. Yeah, I don't know if he would volunteer for that. Uh, what, what you're actually looking at is when he was asked a few years ago by NASA, uh-huh. and I don't know how many how many times he did this, he actually trained astronauts in Arizona on landscape that looked like mm-hmm. another planet. And it, it, it looked like, felt like, and, and, and existed, except with oxygen present, in a Martian environment. And that, that actual location has now been identified by Navajo people. They're so proud of it that this NASA training went on in Navajo Nation, and it's uh, just outside of Tuba City. He wasn't actually applying to get shot off into space. Uh, okay. The thing is, he said, I'm not really as interested in active volcanoes. Uh, as, as I am in ones that aren't active at this time. Well, I was just thinking when I saw that, uh, uh, obviously, New Mexico's got a, a history of uh, yeah. uh, NASA astronauts, uh, very famous ones, obviously, uh, Harrison Schmidt uh, being uh, one of the last people on the moon. He was just interviewed recently on television, on CNN, we saw it. And we have hosted twice one of the primary uh, scientists from the lab in Los Alamos responsible for one of the Martian rovers. There are several now, but this one is called Curiosity. And this gentleman, Dr. Roger Weens, is now in uh, at Purdue University. I believe it's Purdue. It's either Purdue or Princeton, where he's the head of the rovers, I believe. But he's come twice to do a Monday night program talking about what it was like uh, so that he could have a bumper sticker that says, my other vehicle is a Martian rover. (laughs) <laughs> he's a lucky man a lucky man well i know when i was a kid i thought by now i'd also have a second car like that but uh <laughs> i guess not to be all right the 20th march 20th the following monday who's who's coming in march 20th we have the privilege of hosting one of the premier paleo meaning first people the earliest chapter of indigenous American history, however far back it goes, which seems to be getting further and further back in time. This gentleman is uh, Tom Thomas Dalton Dillahay. And Tom Dillahay is now a Santa Fe resident, if you can imagine. He taught for a very long time at uh, Vanderbilt University, and he's retired from teaching, but he's still teaching in uh, South America. He's a South Americanist studying early people in South America, and currently he's working both in Chile. And in Peru, he was just with us um, a few weeks ago, 
and um, talking about exactly what he's working on right this moment, which is a very important gigantic mound near the coast of northern Peru. But what everybody that knows who he is, uh, why he is, knows about his site in Chile, which is called Monte Verde. And around 1978, I was a young buck at College of Santa Fe. I just started as, a, as an administrator in adult education. And I saw a news blip on Monte Verde, Chile, which is, I think, 100 miles inland from the coast of the Pacific Ocean. And this little tidbit in Newsweek or Time magazine said, Dr. Tom Dillahay has discovered what is believed to be the oldest site in the Western Hemisphere, Monte Verde, Chile. And 20 years later, in 1998, National Geographic had a cover story that was called The Most Ancient Americans. Mm. Dr. Tom Dillahay, the man who did research for 20 years up to that point in 98 at Monte Verde, has established that it is absolutely one of the oldest sites in the Western Hemisphere, but it was just 3,000 miles too far south to get the traditional narrative of how people got here from the Bering uh, land bridge down to South America so quickly, preceding so many other sites in North America, including the Pacific Northwest. And the answer was, well, you can argue all you want about how they got there. They got there. Right. And so the 98 article, ironically, after all this criticism of his work, said, this is a paragraph I'll never forget, in a saloon, but they might have said tavern, in Chile, near Monte Verde, a renowned site being worked on by Dr. Tom Delahaye of Vanderbilt, a group of independent scholars met, and after much debate, argument, dialogue, and drinking, they actually threw in the word drinking, they came to the conclusion that Monte Verde is verifiably, without question, one of the oldest sites in the Western Hemisphere. This is Radio Free Galisteo. Great conversations from the Galisteo Basin. Radio Free Galisteo is listener supported. Go to www.radiofreegalisteo.com and click on the red donate button in the upper right hand corner to become an active supporting member of Radio Free Galisteo. It's about 14,000 plus years, and that really irritated the so-called Clovis First School, because Clovis First is something we've been hanging on to since Clovis was a big deal, which was in the 30s. Folsom, found in the 20s, but not really talked about much until the 30s, that really upset the apple cart, and actually there's still people hanging on to Clovis First. That's fine. But in the meantime, they have found ever older places. We just heard about one up in Alberta where they found some moccasins that appear to be Athabascan style. And it's in Great Salt Lake, Utah, wow. way earlier than that, than Athabascan, i.e. Navajo Apache, Apache Navajo. We're given credit for being here. And so Tom Dillahay just turned the archaeological anthropological world upside down and sent people back to Clovis era sites that were 10,000, 11, 12,000 years to dig down further. And guess what? And some of these, they have found other things that are not, you know, sterile soil. So Tom Dillahay is going to do a talk. He did a book on this, but he's going to come back. And rather than just focusing on the Peruvian work he's doing at this giant mound, 
where about 150 feet down, he found what he believes to be the oldest cotton that's wow. near the coast of you know, northern Peru. He's going to talk about the peopling, the migrations, and how he believes the early peoples, wherever, what strand, what strain, what genome, group A, group B, the haplotypes, all that DNA stuff, he's going to talk about the peopling of South America. And I think it's going to be extraordinarily interesting because the last thing I saw recently was they not only came from the north, they went north from the south. There was two-way traffic. Fast. I remember years ago, a friend of mine, a native guy, a Nez Perce guy said, you know what? I don't remember there being a one-way sign on the Bering Land Bridge <laughs> or or along the canoe, uh, you know, the the, the the canoe route down the coast. Right. And so, you know, and then somebody else, one of these guys told me, a Pawnee from Oklahoma said, you know what? If only they had asked us first, we could have told them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We've been here a long time. So, so Tom DeLay is so here on March 20th, six o'clock, Hotel Santa Fe. Fascinating. That That sounds like a great one. All right. And the final one in March on the 27th. Tell us about it. I used to talk about Nicolasa Chavez's dad because he and I were in school together and her dad was Tomas, Tom Chavez, who for um, a decade and a half was in charge of the Palace of the Governors, now the New Mexico History Museum, and then later the Hispanic Cultural Center and the Spanish Colonial Museum for a period of time. Uh, and a prolific author I used to talk a lot about because he and I were friends. He got a, a, a degree. I didn't. And his was a doctorate. And mine is uh, still about I'm still bacheloring, bacheloring. Uh, <laughs> but, but I worked really hard to get one, an another one. But, it, you know, I got plenty of time. But I used to talk about her dad. But now I'm talking about his daughter, Nicolasa Chavez. What an amazing scholar. Nicolasa is now, after being um, on duty at the Spanish Colonial Art Museum as a curator, after being at the uh, International Folk Art Museum for the Museum of New Mexico as a curator of Latina, uh, Latino and Hispanic collections, mm -hmm. as well as a flamenco dancer, flamenco singer, uh, studied with all the, 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 the big names in flamenco, traveled all over, uh, written a book on uh, uh, New Mexico NEA, National Endowment for the Arts Heritage Fellows, which was a as a book, and she as an author won a New Mexico Book Award. She's our deputy state historian for the state of New Mexico. She's oh, wow. serving under um, Rob Martinez, and Rob Martinez serves under Rick Hendricks. All three of them really very distinguished historians. She's going to talk about Holy Week ceremonies, mm. Semana Santa. She wrote an essay in a book published by Museum of New Mexico on Holy Week rituals and ceremonies throughout the uh, Christian, the, the Western Christian world, North America, Central America, South America, New Mexico. She's traveled all over. She is just an extraordinary young lady. And we're so proud of her. And I'm so happy she's in New Mexico as our deputy state historian. And she just spoke for us recently. Uh, we, this will be the third time we've had her in the last uh, 18 months. She's just, uh, she's a barnstormer. She's a force of nature. And uh, the next time she comes, I think she'll be singing flamenco songs. But oh, wow. her talk about the interweaving of pre-Christian, pre-Roman, uh, indigenous traditions and cultures, you know, like Day of the Dead. I mean, think about it. All these things that when you go to a Pueblo ceremonial, when you go to a feast day, wh what are you actually watching? 
you know, they may dance in front of the open doors of the church. You know, you're asked if you impede the airflow. If you've ever been to a Pueblo dance and stood at the opening of the church doors, they'll very politely, please, could you step aside? So the, it's just, it's beyond our imagination. And But this essay she wrote in this book, Seasons of Ceremonies, published by Museum of New Mexico Press, really lovely, lovely essay. And I, I encourage anybody that hasn't been come familiar with that book to become familiar with it and look up her essay. There are many others in the book, but hers is really lovely. Well, and clearly uh, this talk will be very timely uh, as well. Yeah, Easter week, just following. And she's doing it at, uh, at the end of March for that very reason. Fantastic. Wow. Okay, so for uh, certainly for uh, our listeners who are out on the East Coast, you now know our schedule here. So if any of those appeal to you, start making plans. And for everyone else who's listening locally, you know when and where now. Cost for these uh, lectures? We we did them in the, our early history. We did them eight years, uh, one year city. They were free. City paid. They were free. Eight more years hotels and they paid. They were free. Ever since then, we've charged at the door and we've gradually increased our price to twenty dollars per lecture. But if you we do them in a package of four for the month, and if you do a, a month, what we call a subscription, you get a little discount, about a, a five dollar discount. But you can come pay at the door and you don't need to make reservations, although we do encourage people to let us know if they're coming so we can uh, make sure we have space. But we have a number of folks that do subscribe month after month just because they get a little discount and plus they know they get a seat because we have in the past, especially pre-COVID, turned people away. And we don't like turning people away. So we encourage people to uh, become a follower and, and, and let us know sooner than later that they want to come. And they can and they can do that simply by contacting Connie because she's the boss. And we'll make sure again we'll have all that contact information available with this podcast. The last time I went to one of these was with Dr. Eric Blinman. That was fascinating. Yes, Eric Blinman, one of the best educators the state of New Mexico has ever produced. And thoroughly enjoyed uh, his his talk that evening. There, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't note that there has been some controversy lately over Eric's situation here with the state. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened as far as you know? Well, all I know that's happened, I've read in the paper, and there are three good articles that I encourage everybody to read. One is in the New Mexican by Robert Knott, N-O-T-T. One was in the Albuquerque Journal. Now, I have the name of the the, uh, writer on the tip of my tongue, but now it's gone. But recently, uh, last week in the Albuquerque Journal. And the third one was written by a very fine historian um, named Sherry Robinson, who's an author and a, a very noted historian and journalist. And her article appeared in the Carlsbad Current Argus. He was removed. Mm. He was removed because he was served at the pleasure of the governor. And he was removed by the cabinet secretary for the Department of Cultural Affairs because his a division of which he was the head and had been, I think, uh, about 15 years. But he served in state government since 1988. <clears throat> and he's been uh, almost 15 years as the head of what's called the Ar- Office of Archaeological Studies, O-A-S, where, courtesy of a lot of people working together, is located now at the Center for New Mexico Archaeology, right off 599 near the Santa Fe Animal Shelter. Eric has been an infatigable 
dirt archaeologist. He started working. Uh, he went to Washington State University for his uh, uh, doctoral degree. He studied under a very uh, legendary archaeologist named Bill Lipe, L-I-P-E, uh, Washington State. He came down to New Mexico to work on the Dolores River project when the Dolores River was flooded and a lot of archaeological sites beneath Mesa Faraday, mm. where all the action was in southwest Colorado was down below the top of the Mesa Mesa Verde. <clears throat> he said that's the last gap, gasp. But his work at the, in the Dolores River project was really groundbreaking. It was a huge project in the 1970s. And he's been working in state government since 1988. He was removed. He, mm. And the cabinet secretary for that and the museum divisions and the historic sites, the state historic sites, and the Farm and Ranch Museum, uh, along with all the others that we know in Santa Fe and Albuquerque, are under the division of the department, sorry, Department of Cultural Affairs, DCA. And the secretary for the Department of Cultural Affairs, apparently, according to these three newspaper articles, has created um, a dust up in the sense of a fair number of high level administrators seem to have left their positions either not because of their choice. Mm. In Eric's case, he was uh, removed summarily um, in, in what really was a very unsatisfactory situation from a personal standpoint of somebody who's devoted their entire career to multicultural education and, and groundbreaking studies in collaboration with native tribes, mm -hmm. in collaboration with the people that oftentimes have been the enemies of the scholars because of the insensitive way in which they worked with indigenous cultures. Eric is out of the mold. It's it just, it's inexplicable. And and these newspaper articles, you know, they don't get to the heart of the question of what was the problem, but they do get to the heart of the question is, can't we solve our problems in, in more constructive ways? Right. And if we got problems, is it really helpful to just decapitate the head the agency as opposed to looking at what maybe systemic issues are within the system. And, and that's really what I think a lot of people are scratching their heads over. Yeah. And I think that, well, frankly, I mean, I know there's more than head scratching going on. There are a lot of people who are absolutely incensed about this uh, particular action. And, you know, you mentioned Eric was a, you know, a dirt archeologist. I mean, he, he literally apparently was informed whilst in the dirt underneath the, the palace of the governor's doing research <laughs> that, that he, he was done. Let, let me go share with you an anecdote. We just had at the end of November and early December, a group of uh, five dozen national judicial college judges, all judges on water issues. Now, what is the most important crisis facing the American West? Um, and the answer, and by American, I mean uh, without regard to borders, right? Right. Um, North America, Central America, South America, water. So these five dozen judges were meeting at the Palace of the Governors in downtown Santa Fe, where Eric was working on the day he was notified, you're out, or you got to come to a meeting where he found out he was out. You come right now to this meeting, boom, at the Udall building, and boom, he's out. Keys taken, computer taken. I mean, it just, it's like, it's not even the last meal for a, uh, a death row inmate, right? At least they get to choose their last meal. So in this case, these judges were here because in 1922, think about it, in 1922, the Colorado River Compact was signed, guess where? 
in the Palace of Governors mm -hmm. in one of those rooms. And guess what those judges wanted more than anything else to do on the anniversary of the signing of that compact with with who one of the future presidents of the United States, a president because he was Commerce Secretary, and then seven white guys, no Native people, no Hispanic people. The photograph in the New Mexican on that anniversary showed the actual seven guys standing there around the future president of the country. Was that Grover Cleveland, I suppose? And there weren't any Native people. Well, does that make sense? No Hispanic people. People have been here for centuries or millennia, and they're not represented. They weren't in the negotiations in 1922. They weren't invited to the table. And these judges are going to find out about this because we were asked to help get them connected to Native community and Cochiti because Cochiti Dam had very negative impacts. And so they also wanted to tour the Palace of the Governors room to room. They wanted to know what was going on here. What kinds of things happened here? What's the history of this building besides what we know they thought they knew about the compact being signed? But even that was a shadow of what they could learn about that event and what they could learn by talking to somebody. So we hooked him up with Eric's former deputy, Steve Post. Steve Post had a uh, health emergency. He contacted Eric's predecessor, Tim Maxwell, three of the top archaeologists in the state of New Mexico still willing to come up and out. And Eric wrote in and said, gee, if I hadn't been out of town, I would have loved to have those judges and show them what we're working on under the floorboards. So that's the irony of these kinds of uh, events. They sound like they're political, but actually they're human and they're cultural and they're historic. And when you take out people that have that kind of connection over that length of time, to the stories of people in the past that were never written about in the history books, how are we gonna teach our future generations? When you go to museums in the Southwest, Anasazi Heritage Center in Cortez, Colorado, you look in a case and there's a placard that says, made by Eric Blendman because the original artifact that was here has, has been repatriated. So Eric either weaves a rabbit uh, fur blanket or he makes a uh, Mimbris or a uh, Mesa Verde style pot and, he, and it's there in the case, and it explains to you that because of repatriation and, and handling of grave goods and following protocols, Eric is way more th than meets the eye. Mm -hmm. it, it just, you, you can't believe all that he has contributed in all these years. That's my feeling. It's really, I mean, there's a real sense of uh, a loss. Um, he is a real treasure, and um, I'm hopeful that... Um, we haven't seen the last of Eric. And uh, well, I know, I know we haven't seen the last, but what I believe is someone of that stature and of that, he's humble. You, you were at the lecture in October. He's humble. He has deep humility. Uh, he gives credit to those out. He has an army of volunteers. They've had an army of volunteers, friends of archaeology for decades. He's got native people in communities. These are people that are affected in their daily lives by his contributions. And the legacy that someone like that represents to me begs for an apology of nothing, uh, of at least how it was handled. Certainly, certainly at, at a minimum. If we are fortunate, we'll try to, we're going to try to get Eric on the show and learn more about what, uh, what he's about and what he's doing. So we'll keep our hopes up that we're able to to get him on uh, in, the, in the next uh, week or two. I think you'll be successful. <laughs>
Knowing you, I think you'll be successful. Well, you got Mike B. Hill. <laughs> I think uh, I think you're being modest. That will help there. <laughs> so, so thank you for that. Well, and also our producer and co-owner here at Radio Free Galisteo, Denise Lynch, who you mentioned earlier, Eric has been her mentor for for years. So I I think we we stand a good chance of uh, getting him on. You know, so many people. I use that word myself. Uh, Eric is a mentor. He's a mentor of the highest order. And to think about Denise Lynch's own heritage, her own cultural path, and her own family history, you know, we knew her mom, we knew her grandmother. Uh, they were very, very kind to me uh, over a long period of time when I was a young buck. And and I don't forget people that are nice to me. And uh, Ann Lander said, you know, be, be nice to people that are nice to you and say thank you. But, you know, just think about Denise and what she's how she feels about somebody like that just being taken out. Yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of feeling <laughs> over here. Uh, tears, tears. Yeah. As you mentioned, it was a shock. We'll see how things unfold. Eric says, carry on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, we uh, we certainly will. And we're going to follow his example and just uh, keep driving on, doing our thing, being humble. And uh, uh, hopefully, like like Eric, we can continue to educate uh, folks around us as well. Alan, you know what? Why don't we uh, why don't we get you back for next month and talk about what's coming up and put you back on the show? I'd look forward to it because in April, we got some really special folks that we've never had before some of whom we didn't even know about until somebody that knew them told us about them. So that's how we, that's how we go. Right. Yeah. And, and I would love to come back and talk to you about um, what we're doing in terms of our travels program, where we go, who we see, why that's important to get out into the field. And we have some really special study leaders, most of whom are, are, are speakers that we've used in the past, but very importantly, native people going out into a traditional landscape and hearing about things you don't normally hear about, in, in a public setting, but which in a small group setting, they can share while they're there. And, and one in particular, uh, former governor, Joe Sweena, Joe Henry, Dr. Joe Henry Sweena at Cochiti, who's been with us on a number of occasions over a long number of years with Connie out in, in Indian country. When you get native people together with, uh, you know, uh, scholars that are non-native, but they, they, they listen to one another, that's very exciting. All right. Well, we'll have you back and uh, we'll talk about April and uh, the, the rest of the year. I want to thank you for your service. Oh. You for your service. Thank you. Alan, thanks, man. I, I appreciate it. And, you know, just like you, we love what we're doing. Um, so it's a uh, it's a pleasure. OK, so let's uh, let's wind this up. You've been listening to Alan Osborne, who is the co-founder of Southwest Seminars. We're going to have them back next month, uh, actually probably later this month, to talk about what's coming up uh, in uh, both the travel program and uh, the lecture series. Alan, thanks for being here today. Adios. Thank you, John. Thank you, Denise. You're welcome. And for Radio Free Galisteo, I'm John Shannon.